Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. feel about this. About what? All of this. All of these people. I mean, you should feel fantastic. It's a good sign. I know that, but that's why I'm in a conundrum. I know that we need all these people and that it's a good signal that Broadway and New York as a whole is back. But? But at the same time, I mean... Please pull over and take a picture. Or do your best not to move 150 people as one through the packed Times Square. I mean, let's be realistic. That's all fair. I mean, I have to give it to school groups. They have it down to a science. That's fair. The kids seem to know what they're doing. And it's refreshing to see them back and so excited about going to the theater. The next generation's passion for the theater gives me hope and comfort of what's to come next. Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Misper. I'm your host, Hope Burden. With me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the magical show, Matilda. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Just because you're little, you can do a lot, but sometimes you've got to be a little bit naughty. And on today's show, we are breaking all the rules as we delve into this childish show, Matilda the Musical. This amazing show arrived with a thunderous applause on the Great White Way as the beloved tale and the world in which it existed was brought to life on stage for audiences to be absorbed in and experience. But before we indulge in the sweeter things, we first have to review the ABCs of the show in regards to the groundwork. In 1988, British children's author Roe Dahl wrote the original novel Matilda, illustrated by Quentin Blake, about a young, intelligent girl who develops a love of reading despite her abusive parents and headmistress of her school incorporating rebellion and magical powers. The novel was adapted into a 1996 American film directed by Danny DeVito as well as an audio reading by Kate Winslet and a BBC Radio 4 program narrated by Lenny Henry. In December 2009, the Royal Shakespeare Company announced its intention to stage a musical adaptation with direction by Matthew Warkus and adaptation by Dennis Kelly. Musician and comedian Tim Minchin was chosen to write music and lyrics after Warkus saw his 2009 tour Ready for This. 
and persuaded during the encore song White Wine in the Sun. It was also revealed comedian and musician Bill Bailey had been asked to write the songs, however turned the project down due to other works. Coincidentally, Minchin revealed that he had originally attempted to gain permission from the Doll Estate to stage a musical adaptation in the early 2000s when writing for a local youth theater in Perth, Western Australia. The musical, originally titled Matilda, a Musical, opened at the Courtyard Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon, England, on December 9, 2010. Following previews from November 9, the show ended its premiere engagement on, on January 30, 2011. In 2011, the musical received its West End debut under the new title of Matilda the Musical at London's Cambridge Theatre. The show was originally scheduled to begin previews on October 18th, 2011, but because of structural and installation work at the theater, the start of the performances were delayed until October 25th. The opening night was postponed from the 22nd to the 24th of November. In October 2011, Matilda won Best Musical and Best Actor Bertie Carville in the Theatre Awards UK, and in November 2011, it won the Ned Sheeran Award for Best Musical as part of the Evening Standard Awards. The production was nominated in all 10 categories for which it was eligible at the 2012 Olivier Awards. The four Matildas performed Naughty at the awards show. Matilda won seven Olivier Awards. Best New Musical, Best Director, Best Actor in a Musical for Bertie Carvel. Best Actress in a Musical, accepted by all four Matildas, Best Theater Choreographer, Best Set Design, and Best Sound Design. This was a record number for any show in the event's 36-year history. On March 16, 2020, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the show suspended performances, returning to the Cambridge Theater from September 16, 2021. On November 12, 2021, a 10th anniversary performance celebrated 10 years since the show opened in the West End, which featured a pre-show speech by Kelly and Minchin, with many of the creatives and previous cast in attendance, including 42 previous Matildas. It was now time for the show to cross the pond and make its Broadway debut, which also means this is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The book was by Dennis Kelly, Music and lyrics by Tim Minchin. Additional music and orchestrations by Chris Nightingale. Director Matthew Warkus. Choreography Peter Darling. Set and costume design by Rob Howe. Lighting design Hugh Van Stone. Sound design Simon Baker. Illusion Paul Kiev. Hair, wigs, and makeup by Campbell Young Associates. The show arrived at the Schubert Theater on April 11, 2013, and would stay for over three years, playing 1,554 shows and closing on January 1, 2017. The show would earn 12 Tony nominations that season and soar away with five, including a special Tony Award. Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Gabriel Ebert, who played Mr. Wormwood. Best Book of a Musical for Dennis Kelly. Best Lighting Design of a Musical for Hugh Vanstone. Best Scenic Design of a Musical for Rob Howell. And a Special Tony Award for Excellence in the Theater 
for the four Matildas. The show would go on to mount a U.S. national tour, followed by an Australian-New Zealand tour, UK-Ireland tour, and a separate international tour. Productions in Toronto, the Philippines, and Korea were also mounted, and a future production in Tokyo in 2023 is planned. In addition to these, Matilda has been produced at regional theaters all over the U.S. So, let's dive into this miracle. As a chorus of children boast about being their parents' miracles, the ballroom-dancing-obsessed Mrs. Wormwood gives birth to a baby girl called Matilda. The doctor thinks Matilda is the most beautiful child he has ever seen, but Mrs. Wormwood is only worried about a dancing contest she has missed. Similarly shallow, Mr. Wormwood, a used car salesman and television addict, dismisses the child when he realizes she is a girl. Five years later, Matilda is an avid reader and lives unhappily with her parents and her older, gormless brother, Michael. The Wormwoods are oblivious to her genius and frequently mock and verbally abuse her. Matilda adds some of her mother's hydrogen peroxide to her father's hair oil, leaving Mr. Wormwood with a bright green hair. At the local library, Matilda tells Mrs. Phelps a story about a world-famous acrobat and escapologist couple who long to have a child, but they can't. To distract themselves from their sadness, they announce to the world's press that they will perform an exciting and dangerous new act. The next day is Matilda's first day at school. Her teacher, Miss Honey, is impressed by Matilda's precociousness and ability so she recommends that Matilda be moved to the top of her class with the older children. However, the child-hating disciplinarian headmistress, Miss Trenchbull, a former world champion hammer thrower, dismisses Miss Honey's suggestion and lectures her on the importance of following rules. At the Wormwood's house, Mr. Wormwood is frustrated about losing a sale of worn-out cars to a group of rich Russians. He takes his frustration out on Matilda and destroys one of her library books, prompting her to put a, to put super glue around the rim of his hat and fix it to his head. At school, Matilda is told of Miss Trunchbull's cruel punishments, including the chokey, a tiny cupboard lined with sharp objects in which she locks disobedient children for hours. Matilda sees Miss Trunchbull spin a small girl, Amanda Thripp, around by her pigtails and throw her across the playing field. Meanwhile, Miss Honey decides to visit the Wormwoods to express her recommendation that Matilda be put in an advanced class. She meets Mrs. Wormwood and her dance partner, Rodolfo. It soon becomes apparent that Mrs. Wormwood does not care about her daughter's intelligence, and she mocks Miss Honey and Matilda's interest in books and intellect. Alone outside the Wormwood's house, Miss Honey is desperate to help Matilda, but feels powerless to do so. Matilda tells Mrs. Phelps more about the acrobat and the escapologist, 
the acrobat's sister, a former world champion hammer thrower who loves to scare small children, has arranged their performance. The escapeologist announced that the performance has been canceled because the acrobat is pregnant. The crowd is thrilled, but the acrobat's sister is furious at the prospect of refunding the crowd's money and produces a contract binding them to perform the act or go to jail. At school, Bruce Bugtrotter, a boy in Matilda's class, has stolen a slice of Miss Trenchbull's personal chocolate cake. Miss Trenchbull punishes Bruce by forcing him to eat the entire cake in front of the class, who bravely support him. After Bruce has finished the cake, the class celebrates his success, but Miss Trunchbull drags Bruce away to Chokey. Ending Act 1. Intermission ends by Mr. Wormwood advising the audience against reading in favor of watching television. Lavender, a girl in Matilda's class, tells the audience that she is going to put a newt in Miss Trunchbull's jug of water later on. The children gather and sing about their hopes for when they grow up. Matilda resolves to end Miss Trenchbull's cruelty. She tells Mrs. Phelps more of the story of the acrobat and the escapologist. Bound by their contract, they perform their feat, which goes well until the last moment when the acrobat is fatally injured, living just long enough to give birth to a girl. The escapologist invites the acrobat's sister to move in with him to help look after his daughter. Unknown to the escapologist, the girl's aunt is secretly cruel to her, forcing her to perform menial tasks and abusing her verbally and physically. Mr. Wormwood returns home from work pleased because he has sold his worn-out cars to the wealthy Russians, having used an automatic drill to wind back their odometers. Matilda is annoyed at her father's deceit and scolds him, which angers him and he locks her in her bedroom. That night, Matilda continues the story of the acrobat and the escapologist. After years of cruelty, the ant's rage has grown. One day, she beats the child, locks her in the cellar, and goes out. That evening, the escapologist returns home early and discovers the extent of the ant's cruelty. He, confronts, he comforts his daughter. He promises he will always be there for her. Filled with rage, he runs out to find the ant, but is never seen again. The next day, Miss Trunchbull forces Miss Honey's class to undergo a grueling physical education lesson. Miss Trunchbull discovers the newt in her jug. She accuses one of the boys, Eric, who has already riled her during the lesson. She starts to punish him. Matilda scolds Miss Trunchbull for being a bully. Miss Trunchbull verbally abuses Matilda, but Matilda discovers that she can move objects with her mind. She tips over the water jug, and the newt lands on, Miss, on Mrs. Trunchbull and climbs up her leg. After Miss Trunchbull leaves, Matilda demonstrates her powers to Miss Honey, who is surprised and invites Matilda to her house for tea. On the way, Matilda admits that her father is not proud of her and calls her names. Miss Honey tells Matilda of her cruel and abusive aunt, who looked after her as a child after her parents died. When Miss Honey first became a teacher, her aunt produced a bill detailing everything Miss Honey consumed as a child, along with other expenses, and forced her to sign a contract binding her to pay it all back. Desperate to escape, Miss Honey found refuge in an old farm shed, which she moved into and lives in abject poverty. 
Despite this, Miss Honey finds beauty in her meager living conditions. As Miss Honey tells her story, she produces a scarf which Matilda recognizes from her story about the acrobat and the escapologist, which she realizes is the true story of Miss Honey's childhood, and that her wicked aunt is Miss Trenchbull. Back at school, Miss Trunchbull forces the children to take a spelling test. Anyone who misspells a word will be sent to the chokey. The children fail to misspell a single word, so Miss Trunchbull invents a word in order to be able to punish Lavender. As Lavender is about to be taken to the chokey, her classmates deliberately misspell simple words, telling her she cannot send them all to the chokey. However, Miss Trunchbull has built many more chokies. Matilda uses her powers to write on the blackboard and convinces Miss Trunchbull that it is the ghost of Miss Honey's father demanding that she give his daughter back her house or he will get her. Miss Trunchbull runs from the school screaming and the children celebrate their freedom. At the library, Miss Honey and Mrs. Phelps relay the aftermath of the events. A few days after Miss Trunchbull ran away, Miss Honey's parents' will has been found. They left all their money and their house to her. Miss Trenchbull is never seen again, and Miss Honey becomes the new headmistress of the school. Matilda cannot use her powers again, and Miss Honey is sad that a child who has helped others this way is stuck in an unloving home. The Wormwoods arrive at the library in a panic, telling Matilda that she must leave with them because they are fleeing to Spain. Mrs. Wormwood states that the wealthy Russians that her husband was dealing with are the Russian Mafia, who are unhappy about being sold broken cars. Miss Honey asks if Matilda can stay with her, but the Russian Mafia arrive before a decision can be made. As the Wormwoods hide, Sergei is impressed and moved by Matilda's intellect and respect, and he agrees not to harm the Wormwoods, providing he never has to deal with Mr. Wormwood again. Mr. Wormwood agrees to let Matilda live with Miss Honey as the Wormwoods leave for Spain. The The end. end. Let's talk about the parts that we liked. And the parts that might need a little work. Um, this, this is a fun show. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. This show, I think one of the words that comes to mind is larger than life. It's like a book that has just jumped off the page into reality. Um, yeah. Which is just beautiful. I really enjoyed the show just top to bottom. I thought it was super creative. Um, I don't want to say it was like comic book, but it almost was a little bit comic book. It, it was very imaginative. It was almost like a pop-up book rather yes. than a comic book. Um, it was super creative, whether it was the design or if it was the book or lyrics. I mean, it it really captured that childlike mm-hmm. imagination. Oh, 100%. I think this show is a beautiful example of theater as a collaborative art form because it Everything just meshed together so well. Yeah. All elements. And I love that the centered idea was like the power of letters and words. 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, of course we had the story of Matilda and all of that. Oh, the dejected daughter, whether it be her or Miss Honey, whatever you have. But at the end of the day, it was the power of words and of knowledge and mm-hmm. things like that. Like, that's how we overcome... Adversity. Yeah, and I think that's a lesson that's that's well taught, that's well learned. Um, you can do anything with knowledge. Yes. You know, as G.I. Joe said. Yes, <laughs> knowledge is power, G.I. Joe. <laughs> you know, so I, I thought they did it, you know, because children's stories, it can be hard to translate to the stage. Oh, yeah. Well, and especially when you have a show that is lives in that slightly larger than life realm, uh, because there's a little bit of that fantasy to it. Um, and when you when you're going up against, I'm sorry, I think the Danny DeVito film, like I know that oh, yeah. film, you know, I think I would call it. I don't want to call it a cult classic. I just call it a classic. So you've got this world renowned classic book, the story, and then you add this great film, this classic film that all, if not most people, know. Now you're trying to bring it to the stage, and it is closer to the book than the film, so there's a little bit of a Diet Pepsi twist to it, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't remember the librarian in the film. Like she, yeah, I don't think she existed. You know, but you're, you're making all that happen, and you've got to, you still have to communicate all, all of that power, all of that magic, all of that wisdom. Um, I think they did a really good job of making sure that the characters were larger than life and fun and relatable and somewhat satirical but more closer to cartoony yes eccentric yes. was the word i think i'm going eccentric. for yeah, yeah especially the parents well yeah especially because that's kind of road roll dolls um books that's kind of what they are they live in the plane but extraordinary if that yes. makes any sense believe it or not i've only read two roll doll books in my oh. entire life the bfg okay. which i adore and the witches. Okay. And I remember reading the witches as a kid, and I was like, "This is a little messed up." But what I love is like, Roald Dahl is up there with like the, I'm gonna write a children's story, but it's meant to teach you a lesson. Yes. Um, very much like Into the Woods, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the, eh, it's happily ever after, sort of. Well, it's like, like you it's... need to learn a lesson, not just the the children. But the adults, too. Yes, that the adults need to learn something, too. Yeah. So, why don't we delve into some design elements of the show um, to bring our listeners into the world even more. Pull back the curtain, if you will. (laughs) And uh, let's start with the set. And I want to jump on this right away, because this is one of my favorite, like, visceral memories. Um, I loved the use of, like, the Scrabble letters... And the fact that, so like, when you walked in, it looked like a black hole or like, what do you, you, like a wormhole or whatever came Mm -hmm. out of the stage, this whole netting that came off the stage and out into the audience. And there were all sorts of letters scattered in it. Yeah. But then there were these tiles that looked like Scrabble letters. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... And I'm trying to remember, were all the letters in... All the letters were in Scrabble tiles. No, no. No, no, just Matilda. Yeah, just the letters that are in Matilda. So, on on basically the proscenium scattered throughout all these letters are Scrabble tiles that spell out Matilda. Hmm. And each letter had a spotlight on it. Like, they were lit up pre-show, okay? Um, But from the... and, and, And the curtain was down. And the logo, you know, Matilda was on the curtain. Um, and I thought 
what an incredible first impression that was. The fact that like we're gonna go down this hole with all these letters and like you know, mm-hmm. I never thought of Matilda with letters or with words. Like that's not my first thought at all. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is an interesting idea at first. So that. There's very few shows that, like, I walk in the theater and that set immediately is like, oh my gosh, like, I'm already Yeah, there. it's one of those sets that still sits with me every time I think about it. Because it was like the the letters were just existing in space mm-hmm. coming off of the stage. Like, it was like yeah. the words were just pouring off of the stage and, and it was beautiful. And it built so far out. It wasn't just like, we're going to wrap this around just barely. I mean, it came out into mm-hmm. the theater. And they were like individual letters. Like they like weren't... Like wicked out. Like way out into mm-hmm. it. And they weren't just like, you know, it wasn't just like a screen or something. It was literally... Physical Individually letters. hanging letters. In different fonts and everything. It was so mm-hmm. creative. Um, and then piggybacking on that. Piggybacking? Piggybacking? Piggyback? Yeah, that's... The... Piggybacking? Yeah. Wow. We're Speaking of words, <laughs> um, there was the, the school song... Where Tim Minchin is just such a smart writer. Um, and so there was this gate separating these new students who were singing, My mommy says, I'm a miracle. And these students who had been there for a long time were singing, they're kind of like, Welcome to school, welcome to hell, shout at the devil, you know. Um, and they go through they, the they alphabet. Were, right. They were doing the alphabet A to Z. Mm-hmm. And they were emphasized, and it was so brilliant. But, but that like, wasn't the brilliant part. It was the use of these blocks that, like, you know, you guys remember the little wooden blocks that had the letters? Again, different fonts, and they would shove these in there so the students could climb even higher. Yeah, it was like this, like, it was like uh, like a monkey bar set. Like, oh, well, it was, a, it was a gate. It was a, it was a giant yeah. grid that they could climb, but they, they didn't climb it. They used... The blocks like steps yes. to climb even higher. And see, to me, there was a dual meaning behind that design. The first of all is it was a clever design to emphasize the song. But second of all, you know, despite having this dark song, the more information we got in the blocks, the more knowledge, the higher you got. Right. So there was a positive message through it despite being this dark song. Well, and the other couple pieces that stick out to me is that the floor looked like a book. Like, the actual stage where they were standing on looked like an open book. That's why it kind of had, like, that pop-up feeling. Oh, I don't remember uh, that. It was most particularly noticeable in Miss Honey's uh, cottage. I don't remember um, that. And then um, the library just felt huge because they used yes. those, like, rolling flats that were just covered in books. Yeah, I do remember that. And so it just felt like there were books everywhere. I also loved um, Top Effect 2, the swings. Mm-hmm. And what was cool about them is I'm sure our our listeners are probably like, what's the big deal about swings? Um, well, the reason why it was cool is because these swings came way out over the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, which was amazing. So if you were in the orchestra, I would say all the way back to... I don't know, starting egg, maybe the K. These swings were coming out over you, you know? It wasn't mm-hmm. just like, we were on the stage. Like, <coughs> they were coming out way over the audience, which was exciting. So for those of us higher up in the mezzanine or the balcony, we saw them coming up towards us, which is something you don't always see in a theater, especially when you have that 
pendulum-like motion on stage. You you can see it, but like it keeps it on stage. The fact that they were able to go out and over, over the, the audience. audience is great. Um, the chocolate cake, come on. That was. I mean, funny. look at what what was cool about it is bringing it back to the pop up book thing that you mentioned. Um, it wasn't like a secret about how they did it. It was so it's such a low tech thing. So he's eating and his back's to the audience. And it just goes down as he eats a piece and he leans back and he leans forward and the next piece just slips down. I'm like, this is such a low-tech thing, but it's so clever because it fits this design perfectly. Yeah. Um, the, the, the chalkboard scene at the end. And this was really cool because from what I could see, now obviously the, the message on the chalkboard was a projection. We know that. Mm-hmm. But I want to know how the chalk was done because that looked 3D. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, I get to like it right, but I'm like, mm, how did that truck be done? Because it fell at the end, remember? It falls oh, yeah. on the ground. So I'm yeah. like, how... What's happening here? What are we doing? Um, I don't know. It was cool. Yeah. I've got questions. Who's got answers? <laughs> uh, friends in England, find out. Get on that. Um... And then I, I, I don't want to forget about the opening scene. And the reason why I love that opening scene with the table is it's the use of two levels and two spaces. So you have the parent up above doing their parent thing, you know, and then you have all the kids doing mischief below. Mm-hmm. How smart is it? All we have is a table. We already have established that we are going to use every inch of the space. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really loved about this set is it was brilliant, it was functional, and they just they used the space. There yeah. wasn't a bit of the stage that they didn't use and it wasn't like you know the will and grace wide dancing kind of thing it was like no that we needed to it was justified we we used it as we absolutely had to do yeah most definitely um i think the next thing we should definitely touch on is costumes because it the shows doesn't necessarily have like a distinctive time period it's definitely more modern um which i think kind of gives it a kind of a classic look to it. I mean... I would say it's of today. Yeah. It doesn't... Yeah, like you said, it doesn't state what time it is, so I would say today. And so, to be able to make these characters look larger than life, yet also look realistic, I think was very beautifully done. I loved the Trunchbull costume. It was so transformative. Especially considering what Bertie Carvel looks like in real life. Um, A trip for me was a few years later... We would see Bertie Carvel in Ink, and yeah. he plays Rupert Murdoch. Uh huh. And I was like, "No, nah, no, nah, you're you're Miss Trenchable. I don't <laughs> think you understand. Like, you're Miss Trench. So, like, knowing what, like I said, knowing what Bertie Carvel looks like, that transformation is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Well, and it wasn't what I appreciated is it wasn't like you know. They didn't just like throw on a like a fat suit or something like that. They made it was sculpted to make her the, look like the book and, and to look intimidating in a way. Yes. Yes. It wasn't. It wasn't poking fun at her body in any way, which I appreciated. It was literally just like, here, we're going to present. You know what? What would be terrifying to a five-year-old? It, exactly. And the fact that the the costume was also functional, because remember. She does a somersault. Yeah. Which was amazing. And um, I think that it's interesting, you know, that the trench bowl is played by a male mm-hmm. in essentially trench bowl drag. Um, 
because I think that the only real way you needed someone who looked imposing and for casting purposes it was probably a lot easier to find a male who looked imposing than a female. That would be an interesting question to pose. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm going to get a little meta here, is it the fact that she has no real male, like all the men in her life are negative. And so because Trunchbull is in that negative column, she is also played by a male. The only exception mm-hmm. to that would be Mrs. Wormwood. Yeah. I mean, I know, to something... be fair, with all the makeup and everything, kind of looks like a drag queen. Right, but, but it's an interesting... Like I said, meta it, yeah. interpretation. Um, I love the silhouette of Matilda, which is now iconic, that pose. Mm-hmm. Completely iconic. It's like, I, I have a query for you, my, my, my hair wig master over there. Um, anybody who looks up the Matildas, so there's, there's four Matildas in a production at one time, if memory serves me right. I remember the Broadway production, particularly like when they did the Tonys, and they all come out and they do their different poses. They all have different hair. Mm-hmm. Like, are, are they, is that an intentional thing? So... Uh, what's up with that? Because it, I remember the frizzy hair, I remember a ponytail, I just... what? So, I can't remember if the Matildas were wearing wigs or not. Right. Um, but the thing to know about Campbell Young Associates, when they design, they design a more realistic look mm-hmm. when it comes to hair. And so, not everyone has the same hair, right? So, you can't take four different children and put them in the exact same color hair mm-hmm. or even in the same style hair just because it's not going to look right. It's going to look cartoony. And since we're trying to walk that line of realistic, larger than life... Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so they probably just used their own hair. Mm-hmm. Sorry, listeners, for those uh, tuning in while we're talking, I just pulled up a picture of um, the four Matildas, and we're looking, and we've got a kind of a straighter, straight, long, past shoulder-length hair, two of them like that, but one's bigger than the other. Then we've got shoulder length that's much more um, frazzled, and then we've got like a, what would you say, uh, almost... Just past the shoulder, but very straight length. Yeah. So that's her natural hair is what you're saying. It looks like it from this photo. Um, I can't really remember, but it wouldn't surprise me um, because it is very difficult to wig children. Right. Because it's really easy for them to look um, wrong. Like it ruins, it It throws off the silhouette um, that we just... It's hard to get it for children. Right. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if they were using their own hair. Um, and the idea is just to have that natural... It's more about what is flattering on the human that expresses the same thing. But they... I mean, I will say, with that one of them side by side, they do look similar. Just this one with the frazzled hair looks a little bit out of place, but the silhouette overall looks basically the same. Yeah. I think it all comes down to... Um, what looks best on the individual. Okay, that makes more sense. Because, you know, preserving that silhouette. and I just found it interesting. Yeah. I was just curious because I was like, mm, you know, knowing what you do with the music man with all those kiddos wigged, it was just kind of like, hmm, I'm surprised they don't look wigged. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not very common for children to be to be wigged. Um and so, I guess unless it's a specific time period. Exactly. That makes more. Uh-huh. Because it can also be really rough on the hair. And the one thing you don't want to do is damage your performer's hair. And repetitive motion has the potential to cause damage. 
but you're so good at your job that you're not causing damage. Um, moving on from this, though, I love that the adults played the older students. And, and the reason why is I, because they basically played a mirror image of the kids, particularly costume-wise. So these, these older students were mirrored in costume and whatnot to these younger kids. There was an older version of them that existed in the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. which was really clever and you had to to pay attention closely if there was a hat or glasses or something that was there um but those the school uniforms really dropped the age of the cast by easily 10 years so oh yeah doubling from parents to students it was like well mm. and also if you noticed a lot of the ensemble was fairly short yes um, that way they could play both an adult and a child i'm also really amazed the f- more in, into the water we go, into the world of Broadway, particularly when we get into like kids and teens. Yeah. Listen, um, if I shaved, I think I could pull off the 18-year-old at North Shore High School kind of look. I'm amazed at how old actors are who are portraying teenagers. Uh, even some, how old some actors are that are per- performing as way young teenagers or preteens. And I'm like, I don't think that's what those age groups look like but we'll go with it you know and so it's it's pretty amazing um what you can do between costumes and like you said height and things like the illusion of theater everyone always just assumes it's just makeup i'm like oh makeup's only gonna do so much it takes so much more so i it was really impressive and like i said there's a lot of meticulous thought into the detail that you may miss the first time around, but then you catch it. Like I said, there's oh that person, that kid's wearing a hat, and so was that little one. Oh, and you know, oh there's a bigger kid in the schoolyard, just like Bruce Bogtrotter. You know, like you mm-hmm. you catch those. Um, the last thing that I want to mention, and I think they need mentioning, is there was a lot of plain looking costumes, and I say plain isn't like you know they all uh, like basic pal. They were monotonous and looking these gray colors and that. Except Not for, even gray, just like more, like everyday palatable, kind of like kitchen table palatable. Except for three people. Yes. There was Miss Honey yep. and her yellows. Mm-hmm. And then the people I want to talk about, which are Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. Yes. Who were just insane whether it be Mr. Wormwood's not matching outfit and then you add the eccentric green hair um, crazy ties in that or Mrs. Mm-hmm. Wormwood's crazy bouffant hair with those insane dangly earrings and, and the sausage tight dress right and then her, even her like her her the dance mi- competition and the dresses makeup, the eyes those blue, blue garage, garage doors yes, yes. <laughs> i mean th- they were done up to be just those over-the-top people and it sold so well. And the two actors that played those characters oh, yeah. were so well, and good. Especially because, you know, Leslie they... Margarita and Gabriel... Uh, oh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Um, uh, Gabriel Ebert. There we go. Leslie Margarita and Gabriel Ebert were so funny. And they played off each other so well. Well, what's funny is because they thought that they were the normal ones... And so the fact that they think they're the normal ones and they're the most lavish, other-looking um, characters in the whole show is just, I think, funny. Yeah, yeah. They, they remind me very much of the Tenardiers. Yes. So um, so let's go on to our next 
category, if we may, can I introduce you to lights? Yeah. Um, I thought it was truly a high point of the show as it really helped to further the storytelling and enhance the magic. And I think that's important to point out is it helped to enhance the magic. And yes. I'm grouping with lights projections. Mm-hmm. So you had um, a lot of like um, shadows in the storytelling, especially when Matilda was talking about the acrobat and the escapologist. You had these beautiful shadows and projections. And in it the felt back. like we were in like a circus tent. Right. And... So you had that like spotlight shadow puppet thing going on. Yes. Which was really, really brilliant. You know, you just had these brilliant. And we've already talked about the chalkboard moment. Um, you. Um, yeah, you you had really just just angles and effects that they they had these lighting things at really helped to bring out those imaginative moments. You know, um, I'm thinking of the schoolyard mm-hmm. using that angle where where we really couldn't see eyes as well, and so it had that menacing feel. Especially then when we really, had the chokey. Yes, but then it would like pounce on the letters. There'd be a real mm-hmm. big flash and a spot in those different letters, which I thought was really, really great. Um, I love the different shades that were used throughout. So Matilda's home was yellow and blue. The school was gray and yellow. Miss Honey's home was brown and yellow. The park where the swing scene was green and yellow. And that had that beautiful blue wash in the background. Yeah, this was just brilliant because it really helped create the whimsical yet uh, cautious feel. And the thing I want to point out, and I don't remember if we had talked about this previously, but I just saw a show last night that I talked about how certain colors are used to communicate um, worlds or ideas, and I feel like purples and blues and yellows are particularly used to communicate fantasy or imagination, and I feel like that was used a lot here. Yes. Um, And... You know, especially that presence of yellow, which also leads to mystery, in my opinion. Okay. Yellow, yellow. When I see yellow on a stage, it leads me to to lean in and go. There's something mystical about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yellow is not a, a, a color used a lot on uh, in a show. I mean, it's usually used as a, like a subtle color, so you don't notice it because it yellow reads as normal everyday. Like brightness. Well, I mean, and this particular shade of yellow was almost like Crayola sunshine yellow. Yeah. So that's why I was like, this is kind of mystical mystery. Hmm. But then you mix in those greens and blues that they were used, and all of a sudden I was like, this is almost fantasy imagination. And the mainly came up obviously with Matilda when it was just Matilda, or mm-hmm. when Matilda was in the scene. We had those hints of yellows and blues mix or whatever, and I was like, you. You are the imagination. You carry the imagination. Because when it was anybody else, um, Trunchbold, it was gray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Trunchbold and Miss Honey. The only time that actually was different was when it's Mrs. Wormwood and she sings her song loud, and which is very pink. Yeah. But well, she, I also see- she is using her imagination then. That's why. Okay. So the colors I remember a lot of were blues and reds and purples. Um, because but again, it- from the fantasy palette. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So, so see what I but you you see what I mean, and it's almost like everyone's living in their own fantasy. Okay, I can see that. 
And and to be fair, everyone kind of is because everything's everyone's imagining something different. When I grow up, you know, escaping in a book, always telling a story, mm-hmm. what could be, da 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 da. Um, I love the highlighting special spots and certain objects to help encourage our eyes to focus on certain things, allowing the illusions to occur. So, for instance, the chocolate cake that we talked about earlier. The only reason why I caught how it happened is because, like, the second or third time, I was like, I have to ignore everything else and I have to just focus on Bruce and I have to see how he does this. Because while he's eating, he's in the dark. Like, they don't put light on him as much. And they're highlighting everybody else. Yeah. Um, so we're we're able to see, you know, we're, we don't see how the cake deflates. Um, I'm trying to think of another moment where something like that happens. Um, I mean, during like phys ed. Yes. Phys ed has those moments of like a lot happening in the background and focus is being put on yes, different yes. places. And it's um, those special spots that do that. Uh-huh. There's a story. Also, they did it in um, the opening number as well. Yes, 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 yes. Where they, again, the two tables, the two levels. There's another part that I, I especially want to emphasize, but I'm saving it for the story. Okay. So I'm going to come back to it. So let's just go into direction. I mean, I just think that the direction was brilliant because it brought everything so together and just made it so cohesive and fun and imaginative and larger than life and gave you every I mean I got everything I wanted to from it yes even things I didn't even know that I wanted I got yes this is exactly the perfect definition of making all the elements work and work in harmony and merriment and all that like it 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 all the machine was working flawlessly brilliantly um I love the dual message being communicated that childhood and return children are special and a miracle, but also childhood and imagination is a powerful thing that should be embraced and not shut away. Yes. Um, let children let children be creative. Let them make discoveries. Let them go into these fantasyful worlds. But then I'll also throw in another... Um, Message that I I didn't think of until just now, which is you know, imagination with minimal barriers because there need to be barriers because you see in the opening number there are parents that put no, mm-hmm. there's no boundaries at all and you know kids shouldn't be let to run wild, but they should also be let to run wild. If that makes sense. Yeah, there's... they should be they should be put. I mean, the way I like to think about it is they should be allowed to run around the pasture. But the pasture needs to have a fence. Yes, exactly. There, there has to be some limits to what they can do. And that's purely for safety and to help guide them. Yes. Yeah. But you need to let them still be kids. They should be imagining. They should be exploring. Well, and encourage reading because it, it lets them use their brain to... Yes. To create worlds and decisions. Whereas like you have Matilda's brother who... Is backwards. Backwards. Yeah. He, he only just knows like one word. He, in fact, now that I think about it, he only says one word the entire show, right? No, he says a couple of different things. But he only says one word at a time. Yeah, he speaks very slow, very monotone, and it kind of goes to say that if you just stick your kids in front of the TV, they're not going to be able to use their imagination. They can't communicate. They can't be a. Yeah, because they're getting everything force-fed. To I them. love the take it away, son. He plays ukulele. He's like, bing. Bling, bling, bling. 
can't learn that from a book. You know, and I'm like, that's, he didn't learn anything. Like, that's such a good point to make. You can't learn from a TV, per se. You go, or you can only learn so much. I mean, look, I don't want to knock on Sesame Street or anything like that. Proud, I'm proud learner from Sesame Street and the Reading Rainbow and all that. Right, but it's also about to be engaged in your children's lives to help them with their their uh, nourishment and yes. their development. And this show did a great job in showing both sides of that coin. Yeah. Uh, I thought the overall concept of keeping it slightly cartoony in the silhouette and then was such a brilliant idea. And each of the elements, you know, design, choreography, and music really enhanced that. In fact, I thought that the elements, the design, the choreography, and the music really worked together. Mm-hmm. And they were all like speaking the same language, which is not something you you see typically in a lot of shows. Like, like all the elements can be working together, but when they are actively helping to tell the other but, story, like when they're synced and they're saying the same thing, yes, it's magic. You know, when the music and the choreography speak the same words, which happens a lot. But then when you throw in a design element like costumes and lighting at the same time working saying the same thing it's like oh my god that's magic so yeah, like I you just, saw in that school scene with the letters and that i was mm-hmm. like oh you know well and i just think the fact that the the design team was able the production team was able to just really make that t- like seamless uh uh what's the word i want um that seamless collaboration Yes. It's just beautiful that we as humans can do that. And it really comes at the the helm of the director being able to help communicate what they want, what they see, while still letting some... Um, Artistic you know, creativity Yeah, flow. because that's how... The more you can, like... I, the way I like to see it is a good director not only has a clear direction for what they want, but is able to walk that fine line of giving their designers artistic freedom while still coming together and guiding them. Yes. Um, and I think that this is just a very beautiful, beautifully done job. And the fact that the director was somehow able to get design elements to have words, to speak, was really impressive. I, I rarely see, like I said, design elements that speak. Mm-hmm. Usually they work, but to speak was really brilliant. I want to talk about Tim Minchin and his music and lyrics, which were so catchy, so clever. I mean... That my mommy says I'm a miracle... My mommy says, I'm a miracle. It's that perfect line of, oh my God, children are adorable, but oh my God, children are awful. They're not, but you know. I am a prince and I am a princess. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. It's some of the most brilliant lyrics I've ever heard. I keep going back to the school song, which I just wanted to be in his head to figure out how he wrote that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the smell of rebellion, which is a song that's in my book. Mm -hmm. Um, and having to learn that song and break down that song and everything, oh my god, it's it's a lot. And for a artist to write both the music and the lyrics and to come up with that, I mean, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my young naive self in college just looked at it and went, this is a great fun song that's going to showcase a great story, blah, 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 blah. And my older self, I go back and I look at it and I go, there is so much great music here great music style and the words that he came up with odiferous you know and all of that i'm like this is so this is a smart score a really smart score telly 
was also funny. Mm-hmm. You know? William Shakespeare? Who is Shakespeare? You know? Harry Potter? Such a rotter. You know, he's quoting all these famous things and, and he's just throwing them away. And I'm like, that's that's smart and that's clever. There's there's It's accessible for everyone. Tim Minchin did a great job of just connecting with his audience. Knowing his audience. Knowing exactly what to give them while still communicating this brilliant message. Yeah. There's, there's, there's like three or four levels to his music. Mm-hmm. And the more you delve into it, the more you're like, oh, wait. I thought that you were going this way, but actually you were going... Right, but then also to be able to give such fun songs like The Smell of Rebellion and Bruce and all that, and Miracle, but then to turn around and give us When I Grow Up. Yep, or um, what's Miss Honey's song? Um, It isn't much, but it is enough for me. Just hearing that beautiful... um, I can't think of the lyrics right now, but... I can hear the soaring chorus, mm-hmm. and it's just the re- the reason why I keep hearing it is because um, it reminds me of Moana. There's a da 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 da. da. It okay. finds me. That's what I, I when I heard Moana, I thought of Matilda for that. Okay. Um, I just yeah, the show was fun. Um, this was a fun show. Excuse me, that masked itself as a child's show, but really had a dark and deep message in it for adults. And so you heard that undertone in that music that had that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would put Matilda and Spongebob in the same category for me. Where there was two different stories. The kids uh-huh. are enjoying one fun, ha ha he he, and the parents are enjoying something completely different. Yep. There, It was an amazing pop sound with dark undertones, which I really appreciated. Yeah, it was I, beautiful. I mean, one of the things that I, I sat there and I was like laughing, but I was like, I shouldn't be laughing at And go listen to it. Naughty. Yes. It's such a bump, 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 bump. It's like such a happy song, you know? But then if you just listen to the lyrics, you're like, what? No, you shouldn't be naughty. Like, no, that's not a thing. But it's like, oh my gosh, should I be laughing? What it reminds me of when I hear it is uh, the Girl Scout song from Beetlejuice. Okay. You know, where uh-huh. it's it's dark, but it's almost li- it's also lighthearted, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think the music is just really a triumph. Um, all right, the last category we're going to talk about is choreography, which I thought it was clever. Mm-hmm. There's wasn't, like, a ton of huge dance numbers. Um, I thought Loud was a big dance number, you know, because you had a lot of the ballroom dancing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Revolting Children. Revolting Children had... I mean, when I say huge dance number, I'm thinking like the big tap, the oh, 11 o'clock. Yeah, and, no. you know, this, this it, had, it had big dance numbers in the way that Spring Awakening had big dance mm-hmm, numbers. Mm-hmm. It was more about the expression of the movement, not necessarily of like, oh, we're putting a dance number here. The fizz ad, yes. Smell of Rebellion, had big dance... Exactly. But it was very... Very clever and very, very expressive. Very intentional. And can we say, hello, swingography? Yes. It was so cool. And in fact, we saw the show several times and it never failed. And so that's one, one of the things I was like, is a swing on like an automated pendulum? And I, no, because when they slow down and stop, you actually see the swing be natural. I'm like, no, that's natural. These guys have it timed to a T mm-hmm. how to do it. So... I thought that was great. And you brought up Revolting Children. I thought that was just great. Because, yeah, that is... It's more like a 90s 
Lucy Lockett lost her rocket. Pop and lock it. If you guys could see the moves that Andrew is attempting to do. The Rudy. I don't know if you can hear his stomping feet in the background as he's trying to like describe it. It's it's extra, y'all. But it's great. It's so it's so clever. And again, there are words to the movement, which I appreciated. My last thought on choreography is I love the opening number with the use of a round choreography syncing up with the music that was really smart. And what I mean by that is you had the doctor scene with Mrs. Wormwood and that. Mm-hmm. You had the parents and you had the kids. And all three were doing their own choreography before they all came back together as they were coming in. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really clever. Definitely. So... The show has had several notable performers, including Bertie Carville, Lauren Ward, Leslie Margarita, Gabriel Ebert, Thane Jasperson, Ryan Steele, Christopher Sieber, and Alex Brightman. talk about the show uh, and the impact it's had on theater and its history and all that jazz. Um, let's start with theatrical impact. It brought a classic children's tale to the stage. I also think that it brought that particular, like it defined that pop-up book style of theater. Okay. Well. It helped. I, I would have to, I would want to look and see if anybody else has done something like that, but I'm going to go with that for right now because mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone else at this time. Yeah, but it's it it kind of helped to define that style and give us this whole new genre of design. Yes, um, it was another huge success for the Royal Shakespeare Company, particularly on Broadway. Um, and there will be many to come, and there have been many before, but we love the RSC. Um, and fun fact, it was the first. Show written by Tim Minchin. Okay. Not the last, but the first. And uh, if any of our listeners out there want to throw us a comment, what was the next show written by Tim Minchin? Let's see if anybody can guess that. So why don't we go ahead and move on to the societal impact? And we all know this was an earth-shattering musical. No, um, <laughs> no this did. I did think there was some um, societal impacts that this show brought forward. Um, the first one I'll point out now that I am a fully licensed and accredited tour guide here in the city of New York. Um, it was another huge attraction for tours and school groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that kind of sounds weird to people, a Broadway show, societal impact for tourists and school groups. But when you're dealing with school groups, coming from experience, you have to pick something that basically is good for mixed company. Yeah. Um, so to be able to have another show outside of Disney or Wicked that is accessible for everyone is really exciting. Yes. Well, and especially this gave a, like, it showed that kids can go to Broadway as well. Like, I think it's very inspirational for kids to be able to see another show that can be like, hey, I can do that. I can be a part of this. I can get into this art form. Yeah, because there are, 
I don't think we see children as often or as much on the Broadway stage mm-hmm. as we'd like, you know. Um, I mean, that's not necessarily true right now. There are a lot of kids on Broadway, but um, yeah, it was. I think, I think well, it's, I it's think... fun to see a show about kids for kids being done by kids. Yes, I think that that's very important for children to be able to see representation on stage. That's, you know, there's a group that we don't hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way our art form's going to continue on is if we get the little ones to come up and take the torch. Which leads me to the next point, which is this was an accessible show for audiences and theaters. Yeah. Um, it took a classic tale that a lot of people knew about and found another show that you could have, you know, maybe someone who wouldn't have seen a Broadway show was like, oh, I know Matilda. Yeah, I could go to Matilda. Yeah, exactly. This, to me, was the end of the woods for Gen Z. This was the cautionary tale of why it's important to care for our kids. And, and, and I mean, Matilda obviously was written... I th- yeah, this was a story... Nope. Into the Woods came first. Stephen Sondheim wrote Into the Woods before Roald Dahl wrote Matilda. But okay. um, this musical is what I'm getting at. Um, you know, I think more Gen Zers... Those are the youngins, right? I don't know anymore. I'm not gonna lie. The to youngins, you. the youngins who that were coming to see Matilda the musical, I think they would be more aware of or familiar with Matilda before Into the Woods, assuming. But that you, we all know what assuming does. So, but that would be my chip in here. Is I think this is the End of the Woods for Gen Z. Um, and then we mentioned this on Kinky Boots about this season, but I think this is important because it was good for everyone on Broadway. This is good for Broadway, but it elevated both itself and Kinky Boots as they were both highly praised and contested shows that season. So as we headed into the award season, the fact that these two were going neck and neck for the awards, it was like, you know, five guys in and out. Whenever they open up a store next to each other, it actually doesn't drive down the sales for one or the other. It actually elevates sales for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that these two were so hotly contested in the race for awards actually helped push ticket sales for not only them but for Broadway as a whole because it was like hey look at there's great stuff happening on Broadway that's you know that season there's all this amazing theater you probably should come out and check it out so um, yeah I thought that that was really really uh, important to this yeah and if memory serves and right it'll be a, a couple years down the line before we see another two shows that kind of friendly competitive and help bring Broadway notoriety so the final question is this show relevant I'm gonna go with yes okay this is a fun show with brilliant music and a wonderful book and with the right director at the helm can be a magical and transformative show and right now as Broadway continues to strive to attract audiences back, this may be a great show to do that. I also think that it's perfect touring and regional and collegiate and high school and even community because it's so accessible and familiar. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if in the next year or two, a Matilda revival is on the way. I mean, Kinky Boots is peeking its head out right off Broadway there. So... Yeah, we'll see where it goes. It, wouldn't it be cool if Kinky Boots moved from off-Broadway to Broadway, the revival, in the spring, and Matilda as well, and we had, like, 
you know, rematch of 2013. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I think those two shows are fantastic, and I think they just did so much to elevate the musical with their style and their story and the audience that they brought. So I do think this show is relevant, especially in its meeting, especially in the idea of knowledge is power. You can do anything with knowledge, especially mm-hmm. in these tr- troubled times. Knowledge is power. You want to change something? Knowledge. Okay. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show four times on Broadway between 2013 and 2016. We first saw the show three days after the Tony Awards. So we saw Kinky Boots the Tuesday, the first show after the Tony Awards. I don't remember what we saw um, Wednesday, but Thursday we saw um, Matilda. Ta-da! Um, and it was fabulous and the energy was electric and mm-hmm. look it, this is the amazing thing about the Tony Awards everyone gets bogged down I think in the politics of it and I'm definitely maybe I'm just naive maybe I just got rose tinted glasses but the one thing I've noticed about it is when the Tony Awards are done because the Tony Awards are amazing to celebrate what has happened in our community and that season and really come together and exemplify this amazing art form when the tony awards are done when everything's all said and done nobody like doesn't show up you know that tuesday if they didn't win they still show up for the next show and the atmosphere is electric and you're just like oh my gosh i saw you on tv and i'm so excited to see you now you know what i mean yeah and so matilda didn't win best musical okay but everybody was like so excited to be seeing this because they were like it was so cool to see you on the tonys mm-hmm. you know and so i think that's important to note is that it's just exciting afterwards yes there is some disappointment and some shows need that exposure even those awards help stay open yes we can't deny that uh, actuality but it's there's an electricity that I can't put into words I, I wish I could explain that feeling but when you see a show right after the Tony Awards they're riding the high of like we just did this and it's like I'm so excited to be seeing this we should be celebrating this community mm-hmm. and not necessarily comparing each show to each other because they're all different but just excited that like look what you're doing you know right um, one of the moments that sits the... the are, are you going to talk about... Okay, uh-huh. okay, so this is... Oh, no, no, so, please let me tell this. Because this is the lighting one. This is the lighting one that I was saving. Okay. And because I, I remember you, like, elbowing me because I looked. And you were like, what? So when... There's a moment where Trunchbull swings a girl, April, by her pigtails. Okay. And... When she lets her go, the lights direct you to look up to the ceiling and back. Like behind you. And I literally followed it. Looking for this, like, maybe they flew her out on strings or something. And then you elbowed me. And I was like, what? But she was gone. 
-hmm. Like, this is how well the illusion and the design was kept because obviously, first of all, I want to know how they did that because she was getting tugged by her pigtails and getting swung around. Remember? Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember. And then she gets released, and we were all just like following these lights to be like, whoa, where did she go? You know? It, it was the, it, it's done by the believability of the cast getting in on it as well. Because everyone was directing their attention behind us. Yeah. And so literally having not only the lights, the sound, the actors, everyone was pointing your attention to look behind you. Yeah. And it, so that that's it's really just a very simple illusion of directing your eye. The first two times we saw the show, I, yeah, I got fooled into it. And the first time we saw it, you just elbowed me. You're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I, oh crap." <laughs> yeah, he's um, like, I, "I'm waiting to see if she appears." Yeah, I thought she was just gonna like wave from the balcony or something. It was amazing. So, meeting the cast afterwards, including Bertie Carvel, you've got me saying it, Bertie Carvel. Uh, Leslie Margarita and Gabriel Ebert was incredible. Uh, Leslie Margarita is a hoot, everyone, just to tell you. Um, she's nice and she's funny. Um, which I love when actors are that way. They're just genuinely wonderful. Um, but that was incredible to meet you know those original cast members. And then future shows, meeting Christopher Sieber, who I just adore. And he's one of those actors that I'm like, you play the hammiest roles I adore it. You're such a nice guy with an incredible voice. And I love that I've gotten to see him so often. All the best to him. And just loving the show. Loving the music. Like I said, I've got one of the songs in my book. It's such a fun show. I think you'd like to work this show. Oh, yeah. I'd love to work Matilda. It'd be a fun show to work. So theater is back. And we hope, we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch Matilda the musical on the West End or at a theater near you in the States, hopefully soon. We also want to remind you that you can uh, become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town met in a foreign land. One sang the praises of Cape. If you like what you hear, please leave a five star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Spinning Macaba, Mela, Lovira, Kevin McLeod, and Billy Murray. <laughs>